Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What's up, everyone? Welcome back for a brand new edition of Collider Ladies Night. I am very excited to welcome this particular guest because... She is one of my favorite working actresses right now. I mean it. Andrea Riseborough, hello, congratulations, not just for To Leslie, which you're phenomenal in, but your entire filmography. You always keep me on my toes, do something different, completely lose yourself in a character. I'm truly blown away by your work. Thank you. I don't know what to say <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Good. I, good. I always think I, I'm I'm shit at taking a compliment about anything. I'll like find a way to like contort it and make it weird. Yeah. So every time I compliment something, I'm always like, how would I respond to yeah, that? My other half, Kareem, is has recently said to me, "You've got to stop looking like you're like in absolute pain when people say nice things to you." I get it. I, I probably was like, I'm just British. It just doesn't go away. I'm just British. I probably have the same expression on my face when anyone says something nice to me. The winds. Yeah, pretty much. That's it. <laughs> so I have to introduce you to the Ladies Night Dice Tower. That's our first order of business on the show. We play a game called Dicey Questions. You get three rolls on the tower, and whatever you roll corresponds with the question I have here, and that is where we start at least. Okay, so what do I roll? There is a die. Oh, it's okay, and I just roll it. You roll it down here, oh. and it'll come out into the grass. There we go. I see a four. You're probably seeing something else. Yeah. I'll roll with the four. So number four is called favorite, least favorite. What is your absolute favorite part of the acting process, whether it's putting your costume on for the first time, seeing sets, rehearsing, but then also what's not necessarily your least favorite, but a particular part of the process where you see room to grow for yourself and you're excited to tackle it? Um, I think my favorite part is probably... Stepping into somebody else's shoes, you know, as entirely as you can. And my least favorite part, because uh, it just it's a really interesting perspective, 
Um, and my least favorite part, uh, I mean, yeah, unfortunately, that's quite a long list, which <laughs> doesn't bode well. But it, but it's nothing actually to do with uh, with acting. It's it's more to do with um, uh, the relationship that we then have to have with the world as actors, if you know what I mean. Oh, like the the after the aftermath, like after the the film is done and finished, and well, it's almost uh, it almost sounds. Uh, impossible to do a job but you know if, if you if your one job is to sort of accurately uh, it, say for example is to accurately reflect life it's the sort of thing that if it goes terribly well something creative or acting directing writing whatever you become more and more removed from everyday life and so it becomes harder and harder to reflect in an ac- accurate way <clears throat> oh wow I have so many follow-up questions. I'm going to work that into the main the main conversation when we talk about your craft a little more. But that that's definitely something I'm putting a pin in. Do you want to do your second roll? Yes. On the tower. Okay, I see a six. Number six is movie and TV skills. If you had the opportunity to learn about a different profession or gain a new skill through a role, what would you pick and why? Well, I'm, uh, I'm actually, I've just been offered a French film and I think I probably I, I you know I <laughs> I can't say I speak French I, I understand French that's <laughs> that's what I can say about French and my and my other half's French so and he's and it also also has a very very large brain so I just feel really stupid saying things like passe le pont in my awful awful uh, northern English accent um but I, I think I will probably take that on that is so impressive. As someone who's always wanted to learn another language and has failed at it twice, French and Hebrew, I am very impressed Actually, by anybody my, who could do that. My partner taught himself Hebrew during the pandemic, um, which was amazing and really irritating. It's because he, you know, so he was, it happened so naturally for him. <laughs> but I also just finished a film that Scorsese produced actually that um, uh, we shot in um, it's a French film but we shot it in Belgium and Catching a Nerve plays my, my mother and so that was be, I, I like working in French-speaking countries. Or I, I can understand what's going on. You know, I understand a film set in French and stuff like that. So it, it, maybe the next step is to actually speak now that I've spent so much time around everybody speaking. My French. problem has always been as hard as I've worked to learn, then if you don't go out and use, it all goes away. Yes. Well, I also speak a bit of bad Cantonese, really, really bad restaurant Cantonese because I used to work in a, in a uh, Pan-Asian restaurant in Newcastle, where I'm from. And I don't get to practice that much, which is quite frustrating. And it's getting less and less possible to practice Cantonese. <laughs> and when and I, you know, if I if I don't speak it like anything, you just sort of forget. It's horrible. I'm well aware of that feeling, <laughs> except for the Hebrew word that's tattooed on my foot. I have forgotten just about everything. It's great. <laughs> Maybe you should get everything tattooed. <laughs> I mean, I got a couple of nice memories tattooed. Not that I'd forget the other things, but that word maybe I would have forgotten. Osher, which means happiness. It's always a good thing to remind yourself of in any language. God, yeah. Right. (laughs) All right. You got one more roll left on the tower. Okay. I see a six, so I'm going to ask you what you see, so we don't repeat a question. I see a six. Well, you see the six. All right. One more roll. (laughs) I see a six again. Oh, for goodness sakes. Isn't that the sign of the devil? Didn't we get three sixes? No, but... I think a little bit oh, worrying, yeah, you're isn't right. It? We did do three. Where is it? Oh, is it? Okay, let's just, sorry, I'll get 
Somebody needs an exorcism in here. I mean, that's my genre. That's a four. We've already four. had a four. <laughs> Talk about repetitive. Six. Wait, but that's better. That broke the curse. Three. All right, my lucky number. We're good now. I'm actually happy I, I get to ask you this one. This is called Never Again. What is something you did for a role that now makes you say, I'm really glad that I tried that at one point, but I never want to do that again? I don't think anything. Anything? I don't think anything. That's very, that's very impressive. I, I wouldn't be honest if, if I said, if I said that there was something that I wouldn't do again. To spin that around a little, is there anything that you've done where going into it, you're like, I don't really want to do this. I don't, I don't think this was a good idea, but then you experienced it. And now it's something you've come to appreciate and maybe want to try again. No, <laughs> absolutely not. I've certainly had the feeling um, of going into something and thinking, this is a fucking dreadful idea. And then it turning out to be absolutely dreadful, oh. but I've not had the experience of thinking this is going to be awful and God, look what came from that. No, I've not had that. <laughs> I appreciate the honesty there. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, but I th but that's the great thing about getting older, isn't it? Is it, you know, you start to look back and think, oh, maybe I don't, maybe my compass isn't that broken. You know, maybe I do actually have some sort of internal um, <laughs> directional navigation through life, you know, that I, at least I can trust is, is, you know, works for me sort of thing. That is a compass that I'm slowly coming to embrace more and more. All right, we have hit the meat of our conversation now. Every ladies' night interview begins here. What was the the movie you saw, the performance you saw, personal experience you had that first made you say to yourself, I absolutely have to be an actor? Nothing ever. So there's never been a point in my life where I, I thought I absolutely have to be an actor. Um, I've been doing it since I was very, very young. Um, not professionally, but I've been doing it since I was very, very young. Uh, but I and I've been doing it all of my life pretty consistently. Um, t took a few breaks. I took a, two years off after Birdman, um, and I took two years off somewhere around like seventeen to nineteen. But since I was about nine, I've been doing theatre and anything I can, and and then trained and then um, sort of started making a lot of film. So, in a sense, it's not been a question that I. Um, it's not been a question I've had time to address, if you know what I mean. It just sort of happened. But um, it's very clear that I, f I, f I feel pretty clear that this is definitely what I'm supposed to be doing. And even though there have been times in my life where I've grappled with that, um, and, and, I, and there have been times when I wanted to go, I wanted to write more, and I wanted the quiet of... Um, the introspection and, uh, and privacy of being able to write. Um, and the w probably the one performance, funny enough, wasn't it? It was somebody, a brilliant Mercutio in a production of Romeo and Juliet, the RSC, a million moons ago when I was a kid. But I think the first film performance that I was so... I, you know, I couldn't breathe when I saw it was... Um, Marlon Brando's Stanley Kowalski. That was such a meeting of two different worlds of artistry between Vivian Lee and her sort of incredible performative, emotive style of acting and Brando's ability to suck everything in the room toward him. Um, and to see those two things coexisting and uh, 
both being as utterly brilliant and effective in, in two totally different ways. But something about... I'm a huge, huge, huge Vivian Lee fan. But, but something about Brando's ability in that particular role. There's not a false... There's not a... I don't want to speak in the negative because that's not very productive. I don't want to say there's not a false note because that always is... You know, you're talking about negative space. I think what it is is it's just so true. Um, that was something that spoke to me. Um, and I'm a really crap liar. Like, crap, 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 can't lie to save my life. It's maybe my only strength in my profession. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm good at sort of, you know, little affect, not little affectations, but I'm good at imagining, I'm good at imagining someone's life and then imagining they may walk differently, that, you know, that, they, that they're imagining that they're from a different, literally a different walk of life. They have a different rhythm and pace and voice and, um, uh, you know, internally they're different than I am. It feels different to be them, but I'm very, very bad at lying. Uh, crap. I'm right there with you. Yeah. I can't like I can't even do do like an insignificant white lie. If yeah. someone point blank asked me what I thought about something, I would not be even when I ask interview questions. I don't think I'm capable of asking a question that I don't genuinely want to know the answer to. Otherwise, I feel like I'm lying to myself Which by asking it. To me, that's that. When I hear that from you, that makes that, that really reassures me. You know, I think oh, that's I feel it makes me trust you. If you know what I mean. <clears throat> just to be able to speak to you and and I I think it's actually a great strength it's just annoying sometimes when you go and you know you want to support a friend or you see somebody do something or you know you're desperately trying to be positive about something and your face is just quivering and you you know like I don't have a poker face at all <clears throat> we had a colleague I mean Christian's here people know Christian's in the room Josh Makugo once pointed it out to me. He's like, when you don't want to respond to something you don't believe in, you make this face, and I have a gif of that face, and it's like, <laughs> <laughs> that's the face. The old now, eyebrows. I know. I know now. Yeah. Um, here's something I love talking about, because everyone's path is different. Studying a craft like this in school is right for some people. It's not right for others. You went to one of the best of the best programs. You went to RADA. Coming out of that, what is something you learned there that you still find yourself using today, but then on the other hand, what is something that all the schooling in the world, even in the best of the best program, never could have prepared you for when you hit your first set? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, there were lots of things that I learned that were brilliant, not least to, you know, not least to avoid avoid the boys' armpits after a movement class. <laughs> but I'd say um, the the openness was the thing, you know the it sort of cracked me open um i've always been pretty wear my heart on my sleeve but but it really really cracked me open and, and not in a way that was <laughs> detrimental um the the openness is the thing that, that the playfulness the openness is the thing that i that most gained from it and what was the second part of the question? Something that all the schooling in the world never could have prepared you for when you hit your first right, professional yeah. set. I was I was at, actually at Roger and I was filming my first few things, which was great that I got the opportunity to do that. And I remember the cool sheets used to slide under the hotel room door. Well, with a cool sheet is something you get the night before you film. 
tells you what you're going to do the next day. It's a it's a pretty basic breakdown of what's going to happen the next day in scene order. And I just didn't have a fucking clue what I was reading. And I just remember looking at it thinking, I have no idea what we're shooting tomorrow. I was really, really trying. I mean, I mean, I don't know. Now, looking back, I don't know how I had no idea what we're shooting tomorrow, but I didn't want to, you know, I just wanted to make sure that in case I'd got it wrong, I was going to be prepared so I learned every scene that night. I mean, I, I knew a few of them already, but I learned every, uh, you know, I prepared every single moment that night. And then the next day, turned up to set, and then we were only shooting one very small part. But we got ahead, and we ended up shooting the whole thing. So it was kind of a wonderful lesson. I just didn't know what the lines and the times meant, you know? And sometimes you look back to your education you know in, in whatever realm and you think couldn't they just told me the most basic you know what time to get up or like what <laughs> what what it means what the just the most basic stuff we all have that though don't we I ask this question a lot especially to people first starting out just because I feel like when you when you hit some of your first professional sets it's a little scary to ask a question that you might think the person you're asking it to would deem silly mm. so is there any seemingly silly question that you wish more maybe even you when you were first starting out more younger actors would actually have the nerve to ask about well, I asked loads of silly questions um, and it was dead helpful dead meaning very in northern northern England um, and I, th I think I'm not. I, I'm not sure. I think it's a huge. It's a. It's a wonderful experience to understand the technicality of filmmaking, and it's such a pleasure and a gift and an opportunity. And you get it all the time. And I know there are many things going on. And you're trying to focus on what you're doing as well. But um, for a for a cinephile, you know, it's amazing to be on set and to learn about all of the many different structures that make up um, filming or make filming possible so to ask those questions you know stupid what lens are you on where are we where are we even even sometimes you see you know you, you can work sometimes with older brilliant theater actors and they don't know when the camera's on them um, and that's kind of a an amazing thing to see because you're so aware that they have harnessed so much more than you could ever in your however many years compared to theirs. Um, but they, but they're, it's kind of wonderful because they're giving a performance every single time, you know, 20, 30 times over of the same with the same gusto. I can't tell if that's a good, like a good thing or well, not necessarily a bad thing, but that you run important. the risk of burning yourself. Stamina out. is important. <laughs> yes. And, and that is something that you really have to factor in. You, you know, how, how many times are we, are we going to do this? And, uh, on to Leslie, we were shooting. Michael was telling me the other day and I'd actually didn't know this. Maybe I've blocked it out and just, it's some sort of PTSD. <laughs> but he said, Michael Morris, the director of Two Leslie, was telling me the other day, sometimes we were doing 10 scenes in a day because we were shooting on film and we were shooting it in 19 days. So we, that was absolutely necessary that we did 10 scenes a day. And um, I think when you're going at that pace, you need to be very, very, you need to ask all of the stupid questions. The, the, the questions that seemingly you just feel like a total idiot asking especially if you're a younger actor and, you, and you're not sure 
film, so often the protagonist is still a very young voice in many, many pieces, if you think about it, you know, somebody who's carrying the weight of a, of a, a series or a play or a, um, a film on their shoulders solely and has maybe been in front of a camera two or three times. Um, it's a huge responsibility. So if you're in that position, just ask all the questions. Bringing up to Leslie, but kind of looking at some of your earlier credits, I watch a film like that and I watch a lot of your work and you always feel like you jump into things with, with no fear. You jump into projects that literally demand you go to an 11 with your craft from start to finish. And I find that so wildly impressive, but it does make me wonder, is there any particular point you remember recognizing that I can flex like my acting muscles to such an extent where even though that might seem extreme, like back in the day before you had started rolling in all these credits, but then you had that experience and you're like, wow, I could, I could really get to that point whenever I want. There have been a couple of those moments. The first probably was, um, I mean, you know, you have them all the way through your life, don't you? But those moments where you're so lost in something that you realize it's magical and it's never going to happen again. It's a special, very special moment um one of them earlier on was playing miss julie um at the rsc when we in the peter hall company and isabella and measure for measure both of those roles sort of at the same time and then another was um recently on a film called please baby please which i was mentioning earlier which uh is a film directed by amanda kramer who i think is a very strong voice coming through in um in film and i've played a character called suze who sort of slowly slowly turns into marlon brando really um it's set in the 50s it's written in this lyrical poetic beautiful way it's like um a west side story without without songs <laughs> Um, it's incredibly camp. It's, it's, uh, uh, that character Suze was the transition from female to, to not being defined at all by gender was funny and ferocious and wild and untethered. And she's a really untethered beast. Um, and there were moments in that where after the fact, because if it happens during, as I was saying earlier, if it happens in the middle of a performance, we have that moment where you think this is going terribly well, you know it's the worst thing you've ever done. So after the fact, after having had played those scenes, that feeling of um, coming out of it and looking back and thinking, oh, we, we all went there. That's kind of amazing. We all went there. If you can't have that feeling on set within yourself that something went very well while you were doing it, I get, I guess this is, this is a weird way of putting it, but how do you go home from set and then like sleep easy at night or walk away from shooting a particular scene, having confidence that ultimately in the end it will come together? Is there any other source you can look to, to gain confidence at the end of the day that you all got what you needed? I think to be really candid, I've done it so long and the the thing that's driven me from a really early age is Shakespeare and literature and those are the things, you know, that really sort of, they're my cornerstone. Um, I've done it for so long that it's, <laughs> I realised recently, I think probably how I process my feelings. So in a way it's like a cathartic thing that becomes habitual, I think. 
And for a while I fought against that and thought maybe that was wrong and I shouldn't be doing that and that, that you know, that that's no way to live and <laughs> you know, told myself all sorts of things. Um, and and actually I, I've really come to accept it's, a, it's just a part of who I am and how I sort of interact with the world. It's a very weird, I mean, if I was trapped on a desert, if we were all got stuck on a desert island, if we all got on a plane now and I'd have to do monologues on my own on one side of the desert island, it'd be really torturous for the rest of you, wouldn't it? But I'd probably have to do it. <laughs> I don't know what I would do, but, you know, just the, the, the immersive um, and cathart- both immersive and cathartic experience of an, escape, an escapism of, of, of uh, you know, being in somebody else's psychology for a while. Um, it's just a very familiar place. Does I that li- make sense? It does. I literally had someone explain a very... Se- so... One question that I used to ask a lot is when you're tackling a really challenging scene, is there a past challenging scene you could look back on and say to yourself, like, if I did that, I can do anything. And someone recently was like, it's not a particular scene. It's it's like a feeling you keep chasing, that complete loss of yourself into another world. And you could always know when you're jumping into another project, whether it's super challenging or or not you're always reaching for that that same kind of feeling and maybe it's that that somewhat that kind of catharsis you're talking about i did used to feel that i did used to to feel that a lot a lot in my 20s and my late 20s i used to definitely feel like uh get to that sweet spot you know whatever the sweet spot is and now um it's something different for me now it's um now it's i have no fucking idea what's going to happen sounds exciting <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah, uh, and that uh, definitely, I would say, for, for for me at this age, that's a lot more fulfilling. I'll squeeze in a couple of bigger, broader career questions before getting to uh, a couple of specific titles here. Of all of your earliest credits, which would you say helped shape your goals in terms of the types of projects you wanted to take on, both in terms of the stories you wanted to tell, but also the kind of onset environments you wanted to work in? My two and a half minute stint in Happy Go Lucky, the Mike Lee film. <laughs> I love that uh, movie. For which, uh, for which I was, we were rehearsing, yeah, for six or se- seven months. I, I think, I think it was that long. I, um, I sort of lose the time because it was it was that was one of the most immersive experiences I've ever had, and and to watch, to experience Mike's integrity, and to <laughs> it was very confusing because that was one of the first experiences I had on film. So I thought everything was going to be sequential. You know, I thought we we're going to film things in sequence, <laughs> and that everything was going to be this like glorious process of um, you know giving all this space and time to allow characters to sort of be created and then and then to exist in the world um and that we may go anywhere and that it may you know anything may happen um and that was just the greatest most freeing way to step into film my actual first scene was with um peter o'toole it was, uh, just for a second i had to come in and cry and then fuck off um and it was a roger michelle film um, and uh, that was a very different thing because because uh, it was like it was like uh, being well talk about jumping in the deep end I suppose you know as your first job just come in and cry in front of Peter O'Toole and then, and then fuck off um I, 
I can't explain it, but it was like looking at it was you know it was like looking at great greatness and just not having any choice but to do your job, which I think probably we all experience in every industry in the world when you see something that you admire or you you know you you're just faced with the epitome of something, um, and and you just have to jump. You know, you just have to do it. It's literally every day at the type of work I do where I get to talk to people that I admire and I'm in total awe of what they're able to do that I can't fully compute. And it's it literally feels like like I could be super socially awkward outside of the situation. But then the second I sit down and I'm talking to that person, it's just like, go. Yeah. And something something changes. What an amazing thing that you get to do it, every day. I, I can't get over it for yeah. the life of me. I can't get over it. For some reason, this came into my mind as you were explaining some of that. But the last the last time we spoke for to Leslie when it was uh, premiering at South by Southwest, I asked you if there was anything that scared you when you jump into a role because it feels like you're a fearless performer. And you said, "What scares me is doing something that's crap." <laughs> I respect that so much. Respect. Uh, uh, excuse me. A bit. A bit crap. Yeah, a bit. Crap. <laughs> that's like another thing that <laughs> I haven't crap. forgotten. I, I stick to that. So. I don't want to ask you to call out a specific title, but I am wondering if you can kind of tell us how you discovered that that was a fear of yours and then how you can act on that to make sure that when you are choosing projects to jump into, you can avoid anything that might ultimately make something a bit crap. Well, let, well, actually, let me clarify, because when I say a bit crap, I mean what I'm bringing to the, you know, whatever it is, my contribution, rather than um, being in something that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a bit crap. I think we all of us, it's par for the course, we're going to be in lots of things that are a bit crap. <laughs> That's just life. <laughs> but, um, I mean, you, tr you, you do your very best not to. But <laughs> And also, you can be in something that's incredibly well-intentioned at the beginning and it just doesn't manifest, you know, it just it doesn't evolve in the way that you think it's going to and every, with the best intentions from everybody and the hardest work, uh, for whatever reason, it doesn't work. Um, and there's that kind of kismet that you can't really control. But, like, um, when I say a bit crap, I mean what I'm bringing is a bit crap. And I suppose that would be, I mean, I would never leave a scene feel, uh, you know, I, I try if we can not to leave a scene feeling bereft, you know, having not, um, having known that something wasn't explored or, you know, just knowing that there was a, it's difficult to even articulate it, but you know when you haven't quite been somewhere um, so I try not to leave a scene in, in, in that position or any, you know, character in that way, as we all do with all projects, right? You know, whether it's whether you're writing a piece or whatever it is, you, you, you want to fully make it, you want to make it whole. That's it. That's probably maybe a good way to express it. It doesn't feel like a whole thing or a whole experience. Um, it can be very unsatiating, if that's a word. <laughs> Un slash satiating. Um, and that's that's the bit that I, that's what I mean by a bit crap, I guess. I get I that idea of making something whole. I think about this a lot when, like, I, I'm trying to get out of the habit of calling anything a small role, but sometimes I just can't find the words to explain anything yeah. otherwise where it comes across clearly. But... I feel like the idea of making any role, no matter the size of it in a film or show, feel whole to you 
will make it feel whole to the audience, even way. if something wasn't written on the page to begin with. In every way, and I mean, and I mean that that's the great difficulty with. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a strange job that actors have because a lot of actors have that. Actors in my position are getting the great fortune to be able to carry a film or to uh, constantly be in the narrative of you know, whatever they're doing. And then, and then, some actors come in as day players and they 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 come in and out. It's really really difficult to get in that rhythm and to be so immersed and to create an, you know, a whole person, um, a fleeting character in, in a second. And you can see where that works and doesn't work always, I think, in, in cinema and, and television. Yeah. I was just talking to someone about background performers too. Yeah. That, that's absolutely, there, there should also Very be hard. an award for a background performer because if someone isn't giving exactly what they need, even though they're not front and center with a giant monologue, it could potentially ruin the scene. That is important in making a scene feel whole. And some of the biggest budget cinema opens with um, many, many supporting artists, you know, in it close close up in the frame. Um, so there's a lot. Yes, there's a lot, right? There's a huge amount of responsibility for, on everyone. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One more big, broad question that I was, I asked this a lot and I'm especially excited to ask it to you because you've worked with so many people that I really admire of all the actors you've ever worked with. Whose process is most similar to yours where the second you hit set, you two were immediately in sync. But then on the other hand, Who's someone with a different approach to the work that challenged you to adapt and maybe try something new and for the better? Um, probably most similar, Christian Bale. Um, making Amsterdam with Christian, I, we'd done a huge amount of preparation beforehand on our characters, and that's the way that David works. But... Uh, I knew him as Bert. Uh, Beatrice knew him as Bert, you know, sort of thing. When I stepped onto the set, I just, um, it, it, and it felt like there was uh, history and complication, and, and it would just felt, it, it was a huge sense of ease because he was already there when I was, you know, I felt very clear about being there. Um, when I say there, I just mean like in doing it, you know, in your in your character. Um, it's it's really what's wonderful about that. <clears throat> Rather than talking, you know, in in depth 
objectively about how you know brilliant you're all going to be or like you know endlessly talking through the scenes in a way that's like academic rather than practical um is that you have so much more time you have so much more time to just exist as the character and to stand next to your husband your estranged husband and to feel him and see him and know him and feel your history together and um the very huge sense of of quiet actually and another person i really really felt comfortable with was nicolas cage because he is very i don't like talking much <laughs> which is really weird picked totally the wrong job but um in, in my quiet moments i don't like talking much and um he's a man of very few words when he's not in his character because he needs that that time to just sit and he went he and i would sit a lot we made a film called mandy together and we'd sit a lot next to each other just in total silence which i found very comforting everybody out there better have seen <laughs> mandy by now um and that was and that was really a wonderful experience so yeah christian bale and nicholas cage two very 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 different actors and then the um the probably the and then oh also simon russell beale i feel like oh, and steve buscemi <laughs> the people you work it's with, interesting because it's interesting because they're all um guys and I, as i'm saying that out loud i'm thinking that's that's really interesting um I feel very comfortable around Steve Buscemi. He's, he's such a talent. Um, and Simon Russell Beale, probably most because he's both a theatre and film actor. and so, so we speak a, a very similar language. And he just astounds me. He astounds me every time I see him perform. Um, Alison Johnny. <laughs> yeah, the list's endless. It's bonkers. Really endless. Uh, Alison Janney in Two Leslie, her performance is so, one of the m most beautiful parts, I think, of the film, Two Leslie, uh, which is a film that we're talking about mostly today, is um, seeing Alison Janney's character and my character go head to head with the most unbridled anger. And I think we see that so rarely from two female characters in film without it having to be a reason or an apology or, you know. Alison's character is, is seething that, that my character has robbed her son of his childhood. And she's also aware of her own responsibility in it. So she's, she's, she's embittered because of it as well. And the, in the, the wrath that she unleashes... And the character Leslie that I play is uh, uh, completely untethered. So her wrath is uncontrollable and endless and vast. And the two of them together, yeah, that's, that, that was really a special moment. Um, and then the, answer, the, second, the answer to the second part of your question is every single actor I've worked with. You know, what, what have I learned? Uh, I mean... Every single human, that's the thing about characters as well, every single human has had such a different experience of life. Nobody moves to the beat of the same drum, do they? No, no one single person, even completely identical twins who are very, very in sync. You know, there's, there are, there's a difference in every single 
entity. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just really, really incredible to be faced with a new person every time, you know, a new, every actor I've worked with has given me, you know, I've learned so much from. So with Leslie now, she she is struggling with alcoholism. She has a habit of, of lying to the people in her life. She has emotional outbursts. There's also moments of, of great sincerity, ambition, passion, and love. When you're navigating all of that, what's what's your guiding light or your anchor for a character like that, where no matter what headspace she's in, what she's experiencing, you always know that all of her choices are based in like some sort of consistent truth? It's a really fascinating question and really interesting because it's not something that uh, in the process of... Um attempting to be inside of something so much that you actually give yourself um, the time to think back on objectively when you're doing it. So that, that's why I really enjoy, that's why I really enjoy doing press and talking about films because it's like this strange, uh, you finally get to process what's happened. Um, I think uh, there are, there's an emptiness inside of Leslie that, that can't be filled that can't be satiated that's that's um there's a hollowness but there is one thing that can that can drive that there's one thing that can sort of occupy that hole and it's this love that she has for her son um and So that, I suppose, the those two places, hopelessness and, and really hopefulness, those two places, are the, are the spaces that, where, you know, where she spends most of her time internally. And it's quite a massive pendulum swing, of course, because when you don't have a community or support or you've pushed everybody away and you're trapped in the you know, a shame cycle where you're hurting the people you love and then in order to numb the pain of having hurt them, you're drinking more and it just goes on and on. Um, you find yourself internally in a place of total extremes all the time rather than having any sense of consistency. Um, also, the way Leslie looks at the world with, with uh, a sort of vicious resentment um and that's that's quite a difficult place to be in for such a long time if you know what i mean psychologically <laughs> uh we shot this just before christmas um in a short time as i said and we shot it on film so there were like lots lots of different um not constraints freedoms challenges <laughs> opportunities opportunities mm. that we had um it made everything very, very immediate that we shot it so quickly because um, every last person, every creative person involved in the film, every time we had a take and we didn't have a lot of film to be wasting, were absolutely ready at all times to be tuned in to Leslie. And from the very first day, we did two incredibly... Um, she was she was pretty ferocious on the first like the uh, 
the, the two scenes we did on the first day were pretty ferocious. There was a lot of shouting and throwing things about and all sorts of stuff. Very early on, the whole company, we as a company, realised what we were dealing with, including me, because I have no idea what, you know, until we start. You know, I'm not going around to Michael Morris's house and screaming in front of his kids, uh, traumatising everyone. You don't really know until you're in that very, very moment what's going to happen. And a lot of what happens into Leslie isn't scripted as well, especially her outbursts. Um, so, so from that very first day, everybody, I think, became not just me internally, but everybody became familiar with what capturing Leslie was in this film. Like, we all knew what when we were in the, the right place, if you know what I mean. With that in mind, in a, in a film where you have one challenging scene after the next and you're filming it that way, going into production, which scene did you kind of circle in red and say, I think that's going to be the most challenging one for me? And then ultimately, which one did indeed wind up being the most challenging? Was it that or did something else catch you by surprise during the production process? I never do that. Um like the, the, uh, the work that I do is like more the you know knowing this person knowing the streets that she walked the school that she attended um, the things that she loves you know um, and then when you get there there's this there's this landscape that you go through narratively and you have an idea of that, and you have a very specific idea about the words, and those, those have, uh, have a great deal of respect for the words, and our writer, Ryan, based this on his own life in many ways. Um, but I think maybe to circle something in, in advance might be the, probably the worst thing that I could do. Um, I don't know. I, I There's, you know, there's... A, I said this before, but I once said to, when I was first working with Mike Lee, this is why it was one of the reasons it was such a formative experience, this and many, many other pearls of in, in, in incredible wisdom, but I, but I said to him, oh, I see, so I don't need to know that about something. And he said, no, you need not to know that. And so in, a, in the same way, you know, I suppose I need not to know what's going to take us all aback. Um, and that's an exciting environment to work in. It's, it's not the most, you know, Leslie's not the most stable character to be around for three or four weeks. And you could definitely feel, I mean, everybody, I, I feel like everybody who made this film has had a Leslie in their life or has orbited one or felt like they hold characteristics of Leslie and identify with her in many ways or or both or have had both experiences and it was clear when we finished that film that it had been like a marathon for us all because to be around her <laughs> as you can imagine and not just the, the amount of times we see her having an outburst but over and over and over and over again because on a film set you're seeing it way more times than that although to be fair on this film a lot of the film is one the first or second take because of the amount of the time constraints and because of the amount of film we could afford. <laughs> um, but it was clear that when we came out of the experience that every single person on the film had been on a journey. 
had come out at a different place than they came in, which is true of every piece, but it was particularly true of this piece. A marathon, well worth running. It is a very special film. And one that had an Independent Spirit Award nomination waiting for you at the finish line. And in my personal opinion, at least, it should be that and more. And I deeply believe that. I'm also a big, big cheese ball when it comes to award season. I love prognostication and that stuff. I just have fun with it. But I just love the fact that award season celebrates like a whole wide variety of things. It could be something deeply personal to you, compa- uh, dependent on you know where you're at in your career. It could mean something depending on the subject matter of the film. It could be getting recognition for something that ultimately change the, changes the industry for the better going forward. So... What does the award season recognition that Two Leslie is getting right now means mean to you? I mean, it's incredible. It's. I think um, you and I were talking about this earlier, but um, I was promoting four films this year, two of which had huge platforms behind them and a lot of muscle. Um, this is not one of those <laughs> films. We don't. We're, uh, you know, we're doing. We're, we've done a lot of legwork ourselves to share the film with, basically share the film with the world, and that's been really, actually, really. I wouldn't change that for the world. It's been so rewarding and such an incredible experience to have so many personal conversations with people about this film and how it's affected them in so many different ways. So the fact that. I think that the real win for the film is that the nomination brings it to more people. Um, it feels wonderful in every way, you know, to, to for it to be recognised, for the performance to be recognised. Um, for Ryan, who really wrote this film as a love song to his own mother, who sadly is no longer with us, um, and gave her in this film what she couldn't really have in life not in a saccharine way and not in a sensational way. It, 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 it's, um, it's amazing. It, it gives you faith. It gives you faith that, you know, of those four films, this performance in this film that had very, really very little financial backing behind it and all of the rest of it and still doesn't, is being recognised in that way. Um, it's it's the I mean it's the it gives you hope in uh, good things. <laughs> I don't know. It, really, <laughs> it really does. Yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll steal Christian's words when he described her situation as rock bottom. I feel like even when she does hit rock bottom, the movie always reminds you that there's hope. And for anyone out there, depend no matter what their personal situation is, if they feel like they've hit rock bottom, but they've seen that even in the darkest of days, there can be hope in whatever avenue they could pursue. I I really do think that this could make a very good impression and maybe change something for somebody who's struggling out there so I think so too and I think a, it, it may just shift the perspective from a reckoning being a finality some sort of sad finality to a reckoning being a huge opportunity you know that the beginning of your life really the reckoning is the beginning of the, of the next chapter um, I love that thought. if you're able to get through it you know it's a very inspiring concept. I also, before I wrap here, I have to add that I, lo- I love the fact that I'm seeing so many of your peers that I admire getting behind the film and support. Like, I just see it on, on social media from other actors that I adore. They're, they're pushing it hard right now. 
And I also feel like a big part of why award season is important to me is because we are all one community and no one can make these impossible things happen if not for the support we give each other. So to see that actively happening to such an extent, supporting a little movie that should have more resources and should have a bigger platform and voice this time of year in particular, that's something special that also should be celebrated. It is. It, it, it's really to be celebrated and it cuts through the noise of, um, of everything else. It's interesting that you say that should have more you know, should have more money. And, and I said it myself, it's not financially supported. And actually, I'm, I th- you know, now now that we're talking about it, I'm thinking it shouldn't have more money. Everything else should have less money. <laughs> That's the you know, way. <laughs> not having enough to eat in the world. There are people struggling all over the place. And our, uh, what we do is very, very expensive. I don't, I don't personally think we need to spend more money. I think we need to spend less. But, but the idea that you can buy the same in politics or anything else that you can buy a voice that you that you can buy the the how loud your message is um is the, it's the most dangerous thing in the world isn't it it's led to all of the disasters <laughs> it really has and it also it makes a judgment on the audience that they are only willing to consume one of five things as opposed to a plethora of many many different things how do we know what people want we don't and it's important to just offer everything up in a much less pushy, <laughs> pushy way, so that um, films like this get through. Yeah, this film, this film will literally get through because people genuinely believe in it, and because it's exceptional, and for for no other reason. Mm. And those are those are probably the two most important things to have backing accolades like mm. this. Mm. Andrea, I could have kept you here for hours and hours. I can't believe how few titles I've hit that I want. Matilda the Musical. Everybody watch Matilda the Musical. It's so much fun watching you have fun in a oh, role like that. Oh, yeah. I've seen a lot of head, like between this and Possessor. I'm like, have fun. I like it. <laughs> Congratulations. I mean it from the bottom of my heart to Leslie is a special film. And you are a special voice in this industry. I will never stop keeping you at the top of my list saying I need to see everything she's I mean it. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.